if we can see it through that developmental lens of what are they really trying to do here and how do we accompany them to meet those developmental needs, then I think you see kids who are just not the typical middle school story, not rolling their eyes and ignoring you, but actually very motivated people when you're helping them do what they need to do. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and I have a great episode for you today. Middle school may not feel like a very enchanting time in our lives. It definitely did not feel that way for me when I was living through it. But according to my guest, Chris Baum, Middle school is a time of great magic and opportunity for our kids, and for us as parents, if we know what we're looking for. Chris Baum, an education leader and writer, is passionate about helping young people on their journey of discovering their human potential, which he writes about in his new book, Finding the Magic in Middle School. In our conversation today, Chris explains the three stages of identity development a child goes through in middle school how we as parents will want to adapt our parenting styles as our kids reach these stages, and how to navigate our child breaking our trust. We also talked about what individuation is and what it means to become a better companion for our kids, which is a reframe I really love. A little bit more about my guest, Chris Baum is the co-founder and head of school at Millennium School, a lab school in San Francisco embracing new learning methods for middle schoolers based in developmental science. He's also the founder of Argonaut, an online program to bring social-emotional learning to more students. And now, here is my conversation with Chris. Hey, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Debbie. It's great to be here. I really enjoyed your book, and I want to really dive into that. But before we do, I always ask people to tell me a little bit about their personal story and their personal why. I know you have a really interesting background. So maybe you could just tell us some of the highlights about how you came to be doing what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. I think maybe like a lot of people, I got into this by heading in the opposite direction, (laughs) and life turned me around. You know, I was an unhappy middle schooler and high schooler for that matter. I I thought school was boring. I didn't know how to connect with people. I just kind of marched through it. Went to college thinking, I'm not sure what I'll do, but it will not be education. (laughs) That was the one thing I was confident about. And so, of course, here I am through the course of business school and and other adventures. uh, I realized it's hard to avoid the conclusion that if you want to do something good for the world, it's going to involve kids. And so I became a student teacher to try to test out if that was really for me and got placed in a seventh grade classroom. Not my plan. Don't even know if that was anyone's plan or just random. And got hooked pretty quickly, partly because I think middle school is such a fascinating time of life and so underappreciated. And partly because the school I was in and the system I got exposed to was so dysfunctional that I felt like... I could contribute here somehow. And then, you know, 20 years went by (laughs) and here we are. And I've been a teacher, run a nonprofit working with middle school kids and then started a middle school. And then, of course, finally wrote this book about those adventures and what I've learned about middle schoolers along the way. That's great. Yeah, I do agree. Middle school is such an interesting time. Before I started Tilt, I spent many years writing books for 
teenagers and tweens, mostly because I too had a terrible experience as a middle schooler as a teenager, I considered myself to be a recovering teenager. And I really wanted to support those kids. And there was a book I just want to mention, have you heard of the book Not Much Just Chillin? Did that come up in your research? No, I'm adding it to my list. It's a fascinating look at middle school. And it came out in the early aughts, I think. And it really blew my mind a bit about what was really going on in the lives of middle school students. So very different book, but I wanted to add it to your queue. I'm sure you have a very extensive list that you're getting through at any given time. It's true, but that sounds like a good one. I think the story is still so strong about how we think middle school is going to be. I mean, I was at an event last night for elementary school for my kids, and uh, one of the speakers made the comment of, enjoy elementary school because middle school is coming and it'll be the worst years of their life. (laughs) I was just thinking again, wow, talk about a self-fulfilling prophecy. We all hold this negative belief and then we make it come true. And it does not have to be that way. Well, that's a great pivot because the title of your book is Finding the Magic in Middle School. And as you just said, I don't think it is a time that many of us would ascribe the word magic to. And so I'm just wondering, as a starting point, what do you find magical about middle school? Why is that such a perfect word? Yeah, thank you. I mean, first thing I would say is from a neuroscience perspective that we know there are two peak times of brain growth in our whole lifespan. And those are early childhood and early adolescence. So roughly speaking, you know, zero to five and the middle through mid high school years. So Those are probably the hardest years to be a parent because of how much change is happening. And I have kids on kind of both ends of that spectrum. (laughs) So I, I see it in those different ways. But they're also the most opportune years. And the middle school years in particular, Maria Montessori, more than 100 years ago, said, this is when the social individual is created. And I think that observation has really been borne out in the research since then that you are recreating your whole self, your whole identity as a social person. You can pick up all the things that are going on around you, who's in group, who's out group, where status is, where hierarchy is. And that causes you to have to rethink everything about yourself. And for me to get to be with a young person who's figuring out what their authentic identity is, now that they can pick up all the things that you and I pick up as adults in terms of the social world. It's such an opportunity to help them make sense of that and to be with them while they're changing that much. So for me, if we can see it through that developmental lens, what are they really trying to do here? And how do we accompany them to meet those developmental needs? Then I think you see kids who are just not the typical middle school story, not rolling their eyes and ignoring you, but actually very motivated people when you're helping them do what they need to do. Yeah, it is a real reframe. That's what I really enjoyed about the book is it feels very exciting, really, to think about what's going on. And as you said, the opportunities there for us, if we want to be in companionship with our kids. And that's something that really jumped out at me is this concept of being a companion. And I do want to talk about that. But before we even get into it, much more deeply, I wanted to just acknowledge that we're talking about middle schoolers, but you also just said this really can go up through mid high school. We also know that neurodivergent kids, many of them, if not all of them are on 
a different timeline. So their social emotional age may not match their biological age. And so just for listeners, I think this really applies to our kids and such a broader level in terms of what's really going on with them as they consider and forge their identities, right? Exactly. Well, it's one of the reasons I love your book, which is talking about how we adapt ourselves to a wider range of learning styles is what serves neurodivergent kids. And it's also what serves middle school kids. Because as they start to accelerate their development, just based on brain changes, development does not have an equal, even pace across kids, even in, you know, quote unquote, neurotypical, if that's even something that exists. So I think that same spirit of following the kid and being more of a guide and companion to them versus expecting lockstep movements, it really serves for any population of middle school kids that I've seen. And I just want to acknowledge for all of us, it would be a lot easier if it was this very linear process with a just a straight up slant, even if the slant wasn't so severe, but that's not what it looks like. It's very back and forth and messy. So just putting that out there. You mentioned identity and you do talk a lot about that. I really appreciated these key steps to identity development that you outlined. I don't know if I have read it in that same way. So would you take a few minutes to talk about the three stages of identity development in a kid? Yeah. So in the book, I talk about kind of three core questions that middle schoolers are driven to answer and then three stages they go through as they're answering it. So maybe I'll start with that piece. Ground zero for a good middle school experience is a sense of belonging. When they first kind of arrive on the social scene and they, because of brain changes, they're picking up all these details that they hadn't noticed before about friendships and groups. Usually the very first thing that happens is a fear and a question of, do I fit in? Am I welcome here? Do I belong? And if they're not sure about the answer to that, it's really hard to go anywhere else. That is kind of almost basic safety level security. So that very first stage of identity development is you're willing to do almost anything to belong, willing to conform, willing to forget parts of yourself, willing to copy someone else. And if that's just a brief time, if you're doing those as experiments, it's totally normal developmentally to go through conformity, to be totally obsessed with the same K-pop band as your other friend, whatever it might be, that is fine. But the trick is to not get stuck there. So the next stage developmentally, we call achievement. And that's where you're starting to realize there are different versions of success, different games that are played, whether that's the game of grades, actual athletic game, game of popularity, more or less positive games that we can participate in and we can navigate. You can find a way to receive some kind of esteem from others. And then the last stage, and the one I hope middle schoolers can get to with the right support, we call authenticity. And that's where you've learned to belong, and you've learned how to play games, but now you're choosing the games that feel important to you to play. So maybe you don't care about the popularity game, and you're comfortable being yourself, which is a huge theater nerd, or whatever it might be, combination of interests and and passions. That is an ideal outcome from these early adolescent years that you've noticed that you're in a social world and you're still comfortable. You return to being comfortable being yourself. Yeah. So I'll just say personally, as I read that, I felt like I didn't achieve that authenticity piece. So I was in my late twenties. Like, I don't know if that's (laughs) typical, but I'm just wondering, first of all, these three stages, belonging, achievement, and authenticity 
is it the kind of thing where typically a young person will move back and forth among them? That's not like they chuck one off and then they are fully in the next one. Is it fluid? Yes, I, I think, and, and there's interesting research behind this, that when we enter a new chapter or a new challenge, even as adults, like say you take a new job and it's quite different from the last one, maybe different industry, you'll go through the same three steps of, oh shoot, do I belong here? Was this a good idea? And then achievement, I can actually be valued for my contribution. And then authenticity, here's what I actually love to do here. So I think we repeat the cycle um, the difference for middle school is that it's their first time going through that cycle. So the intensity <laughs> is up there. Okay, that makes so much sense. And especially that belonging piece, I wanted to talk about that a little more. I thought that section was so powerful. And it really helped me understand how strong that drive is to feel a sense of belonging with others. Also, again, neurodivergent kids, twice exceptional kids, we know often really feel like outliers or maybe have struggled to ever feel as if they have belonged in a group. You wrote a quote that I pulled out is sometimes whether it's as a result of earlier trauma, stressful home or school environments or a different pace of maturing, some students may seem to hang on to a conformist belonging at all costs mentality for years. I have seen that a lot in this community. And you mentioned they can get stuck there. So I'm just wondering if parents are hearing this and they're like, yeah, my kid either hasn't ever felt like they belonged and now they have a sense of belonging and it's so strong that they're stuck there. Or maybe they haven't even gone into or found this space or entered this phase. What would you advise parents in navigating this? Yeah. So first thing is to, to not worry if they seem to be going through a conformist stage, you know, as we were saying, for a shorter time, because that's absolutely normal. But if it seems like it's been a year or more and they're still trying to become a twin of someone else or a group, I, I think there are two things. One is about what we model as adults. And one of the things I love about parenting at this age is it's an invitation to be weird because they're weird and they need to see our authenticity to feel a sense of permission to be themselves. So first and foremost, to maybe take a step beyond what you've shared with them before about your own life, your passions, your hobbies, your unfinished parts. We all have lots of those. Then the second is about how can we tilt the playing field toward belonging in their social life? So part of that is about school environment. If school is a place where there's a lot of social conflict or toxicity, cliques or bullying, then it might be about finding other places, after school places, summer camps, some of that depends on, on privilege, but where there's an opportunity to help them find, it, it doesn't have to be a big group, but one consistent friend meets the need for belonging, a small group even better. That's good to know. One consistent friend. We'll be right back after this quick break. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones. Whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites? 
turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60tilt at greenchef.com slash 60tilt. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. What if the consistent friend or the group that our child has found belonging in is a group that we as a parent would rather they're not participating in? I think that must happen all the time. I'm in so many listservs where this is a big topic of conversation. So how do we navigate that if we recognize the benefits of this sense of belonging and we have concerns about the peer group? Yes, that is a really hard one. As if you go in with a, I don't want you hanging out with that kid, we all know what's going to happen in response. And it is their job to individuate it and find themselves beyond their family. So that, that resistance is also developmentally normal. I think what it means is that we can't just ban someone. Instead, we have to find other peer groups that they want to be in and let that draw energy over. So sometimes it's engineering an invitation that there's another kid or another group that you think they would enjoy and is positive, could they be invited peer-to-peer to be part of that? Or could you just arrange that they happen to be side-by-side working on something with those students or in that project or that other activity? The aim is to have them hooked by the desire to be around a certain group of peers rather than following our requests, which <laughs> would be too easy to resist. Right. So it's more about exposure to different types of peer groups. Okay, that makes total sense. You mentioned individuation. That's something I'd also like to explore. If you could even as a starting point, explain what exactly individuation is. I'm very familiar with it myself, but I would like to hear your thoughts on that and how we as parents, especially again, parents of differently wired kids 
can support that process because our kids may need extra scaffolding. I think that dance of how do I support this child's individuation when they may need me for executive function and other things going on? How do we navigate that? Yes. Oh, such a good question. So as I understand individuation, it's a process that begins around puberty where most kids start to seek their identity outside of their family. It can be incredibly hard for parents. It can feel like a rejection. Parents often go through a form of grief. But I think a a different way to see it is that they have downloaded so much from you (laughs) in ways that they aren't even conscious of, of your core views of life, yourself, the world, what's important. And now they're seeing that the world is way more complicated and interesting than they had known before, just because their brain is now opening them to the social world. And they want to figure out what is going on over there and who am I around these people? So it's about primarily peer driven, but it can also be other adults. I think sometimes we parents miss that part. It it doesn't mean a blanket rejection of all adults. It means that they're looking for different sources of influence. So could be a coach, could be a mentor, could be a great teacher, as well as, of course, peers that they want to figure out how to be around peers. Before we talk about how to support kids in a way that feels authentic, especially with scaffolding, I just want to say I appreciate that you pointed that out because I think it is hard for some parents to see their child bonding with maybe a relative or a teacher and having a private relationship with other adults, whereas that used to be the relationship they had with their child. And so I would just encourage parents to think of that as such a positive thing to have other trusting adults in our kids' lives who they feel safe and in relationship with to talk about things, I think is such a gift that we as parents can give our kids that trust and being like, I respect this relationship and I don't need to be involved in all of the little details. Exactly. I mean, the idea that one or two parents can provide everything a kid needs, I think, doesn't make sense at any age. (laughs) And it especially doesn't make sense when they're becoming tweens and teens and their world is opening. Yeah. Going back to then the scaffolding piece, I made a note here of something you talk about called the anchoring effect that really resonated. It's You describe it as the way many adults let their early impressions of young people guide them. We see our kid as this person who can't do X, Y, and Z. And as a result, we can sometimes miss the growth that they have done and that they're so much more capable than we give them credit for. What advice do you have for parents to test the waters then and see what their kids are ready for and to support them in this way? Yeah, thank you for raising that. I think that is maybe the biggest source of conflict between parents and tweens that we tend to underestimate what they're ready for. We're still remembering them as, you know, six year olds and they tend to overestimate (laughs) what they're ready for. And there's a big gap there that can create a lot of conflict. I think the first, maybe just simple thing is that if we're in our comfort zone as parents, we're probably holding them back. That what is comfortable for us is probably (laughs) where they were two years ago. So it doesn't mean you suddenly give them the keys to the kingdom, but I think one step beyond your comfort zone is wise and they'll feel trusted and they'll feel like you get them because they've probably been thinking, why are you holding me back to some extent? And always knowing that you can treat things as experiments. It doesn't mean suddenly from this day forth, you have the right to stay out as long as you want. No, it's saying, let's try an experiment next week where I'm not going to remind you about X and you can go do this. 
and then we'll debrief. We'll see, did that go well? What did you learn from it? And that can invite a different kind of conversation. Yeah, I love that approach. And the reminder that there really is nothing comfortable about parenting. I know that many of us would like that not to be the case. This is a topic (laughs) of frequent conversation between my therapist and I. And you talk about doing inner work, which is another thing I love. That's something I talk a lot about at Tilt Parenting. But a lot of this is about doing our own work so that we can be more comfortable in the discomfort. Because as you said, and as the research shows, like these are all not just natural, but critical processes for our kids to go through. These are stages they have to go through in order to progress. And I feel like we know this intellectually, but really kind of having a felt sense of this is okay. And this is what's meant to happen is a totally different thing. I couldn't agree more. I mean, if I had to just say one word that I think sums up so much of this book, it's trust. That they deserve more of our trust than we give them. They're not, they're not perfect either. They're going to make many, many mistakes because that's how we all learn. But they're, they're worthy of more trust. And when we trust them, we tend to see better versions of themselves. And we, we might have the chance to relax. It's not going to make it easy. <laughs> I get that as a parent, but, but some trust goes a long way. You brought up trust. And I I do think that is such an important thing. And the reality is sometimes our kids are going to make mistakes, or they are going to break our trust. And so how do we navigate that then if a child breaks our trust, you mentioned experimentation. So I imagine that's a part of it. But how do we navigate that kind of a situation? Yeah, I think first thing is something I know you mentioned in your book as well, which is the importance of having parent community. That if you feel like you're at this alone, it's it's going to be overwhelming without doubt. So having other parents you can laugh and cry with, have a glass of wine with will be very helpful. And then second, I think we all are going to get triggered by our kids sometimes. And when we notice that big emotional reaction in ourselves to try to pause if we can and trace back whatever behavior or statement just got us triggered trace that back to a developmental need and say, I know that they were, they were sincerely working on something for their growth, but something went sideways <laughs> in the course of you know, that from there to their behavior. So for example, you know, you get a call from school that your kid has been bullying someone. That would be probably a triggering situation for most of us before you react and, and go into punishment mode to figure out like, what were they trying to do? I know in many cases of bullying I've seen, it's someone who does not know how to connect, that they are trying to figure out how do I make a friend feel valuable, feel wanted. And that is a beautiful drive that all humans share. And before we go into punishment mode, we can start thinking, how do I help them express that drive more positively? Because it went really sideways and they harmed someone, but the the actual drive is a positive. So... This is easier said than done. It takes a lot to be able to pause. And I, I struggle with this myself, but I think that's uh, that would be my, my top recommendation. Yeah, no, that's great. It is really hard to do because we can be really confronted by the things that our kids do and we can make it mean something about us and have them, we have our own triggers and baggage around it. I love this question. What were they trying to do? That's something I talked about in Differently Wired. And there's an ADHD coach named Anders Ranau who first mentioned that to me, that reframe. And it's just such an important reminder. So thank you for reminding me 
that there's always a reason, right? There's always a reason. And knowing that this idea that there is a developmental need behind it, there is something, there is some kind of underlying motivation for that action. In most cases, I would say 99.9% of the cases, it's not like a decision by a child to do this terrible, offensive, obnoxious thing. There's a this underlying need that they have or driver. Exactly. Yeah, th- I think they are really always working hard to grow. <laughs> and even when that looks like they're rolling their eyes at you and doing nothing, that might be because they feel like they can't grow in that moment and they're waiting. They are sincerely trying to figure out how to be a grown up <laughs> in many ways. You could not pay me enough to go back to those years. I mean, <laughs> it is not easy. It was not easy. Again, I spent years really reparenting myself, which is why I kept writing books for teenagers. I'm like, okay, if I could save any teens from this mistake that I made or from this situation, this is just such a nice reminder about what an incredible time it is for these kids and how much they do need us and that we can be in relationship with them in a way that feels a lot better than this kind of conflict or power struggle that so many parents tend to be in with their tweens and teens. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. 
you get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. I want to just talk briefly about this idea of companioning. And you're talking about the role of parents in the lives of middle school kids. And basically, you say how to be the parents that our kids need. I'd never heard of that word before. I loved it. Can you explain that concept and talk about how we can do that for our kids? Yeah. So the metaphor I I sometimes use, and it's in the book, is if you imagine that you are going out on a big wilderness expedition somewhere really beautiful and maybe slightly dangerous, (laughs) like you're hiking in the Arctic or something like that. And if you can imagine you, you could hire one guide to accompany you on that, what kind of person would you want? And I think for most people, range of answers, but I think some some common points are obviously this person needs to know the terrain. And if you're about to do something dangerous, they need to stop you from hurting yourself. But most of the time, if you've just hired a guide and this is your trip and your adventure, you don't want someone who's constantly lecturing you or only talking about the dangers. Hopefully someone, they're enjoying themselves and they're pointing out things that are beautiful and they are appreciating you and listening and letting you have your adventure. So I I think that is our job description, that if you see an adolescent as someone on an epic adventure, you know, an adventurer doesn't need a boss traveling with them. They need a good companion, someone who will jump in when they're about to hurt themselves, but but most of the time is there to help them enjoy the adventure. That's the idea of companioning. Yeah, I love that. There's something you said in the book, you said learning to be a companion is an art, it involves being able to witness someone without trying to fix them. And I was like, that pretty much sums up uh, everything we're doing here as parents. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah, talk about one sentence that probably takes a lifetime <laughs> to figure out how to do. <laughs> indeed, indeed. That idea of companioning, it makes so much sense. I appreciate that metaphor. We were talking before we hit record about our friend Ned Johnson and Bill Sixrude, who I mentioned on the show, probably one out of every five episodes, but they talk about us being consultants for our kids, especially surrounding homework and those kinds of tasks. But that's such a good vision or picture to have in mind. Like my kids on an epic adventure. I just appreciate that. That energy feels really good. Like I can do that. I could be a companion. Excellent. I can probably get carried away about this, but the idea of adventure as not something that's always positive. Going to Disneyland is not what I mean. An adventure is like, you know, a, a big trip that we're undertaking that will have moments of struggle, but also real moments of self-discovery and awe. That That is absolutely where they are. I mean, if we can think back to those years in our lives and realize what it was like, remember, you know, to wake up feeling really different, (laughs) to have your body changing, to have your friendships changing, just to be getting smarter, like a lot smarter (laughs) over the course of these years. That I think that's worthy of the term adventure. And I think it's a it's a happier place to be for us as parents. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I wanted to touch upon the idea of this essential experience project you shared in a chapter called Beyond School. 
I loved that. It was a very detailed list of things to think about. Can you talk about what that project is? Yeah. So the idea there is that starting around middle school, a lot of fear creeps into how we think about their learning experiences. Elementary, we often feel much more open to play-based learning and letting them explore and progress at different paces. And then middle school, all of a sudden, it's like the this creeping fear coming down from college, perhaps. So this, this Essential Experiences project is intended to be kind of an antidote to that. And it comes from having interviewed now hundreds of people and just saying, asking, what is the most positive, lasting memory you have from your middle school years? And we compiled all those answers and created you know, 50 experiences that we just heard again and again. And it's everything from, that's when I started keeping a journal and I've kept a journal ever since, to I started a business when I was in middle school and it got me excited and now I'm an entrepreneur. Or, you know, I became friends with my uncle who is 80 years old or all of these different experiences. And the idea of it is kind of to ask, what if that was the curriculum of middle school? We put them in categories. They range from things like how you develop more awareness of your identity to realizing what you can do in the world. So it's intended to be playful, add to the list, take away from the list, challenge each other with it. It's probably not best used by a parent telling a child <laughs> to do one of these items, but I've seen it used really well, you know, in groups, in advisories at schools and after aftercare settings, just a way to remember what's really important and not get lost in the, the math worksheets, <laughs> not to pick on math, but you know what I mean? Yes. No, I think what struck me is that, especially as we have kids who are getting older, there are these lists of life skills and your child should know how to do this and write a check and know how a food needs to be thrown in the trash. And there are all these kind of things things that we feel like we have to arm our kids with. And I read this list and it just felt so refreshing. And not again, that it's a list to check everything off, but just this reframe of what really matters. Like what are the experiences that can really help shape who our kids are and how they see the world and feel respected and just confident in growing their abilities? Exactly. I, I think memory is a really good gatekeeper that we forget a lot of what happens in middle school classes in particular. Ask someone to tell you about their sixth grade English class and it, it might be a stretch, but these experiences, if it's the kind of thing, like I remember the time that I mediated a conflict between friends, that might stick with you. Maybe that's the bar. <laughs> is it worth remembering positively 20 or 30 years later? Yeah. No, that's great. I have a lot of memories right now that I'm going to hold back from sharing with all the Tilt listeners. But yeah, definitely. As a way to kind of close out this conversation, your book is full of so many great things to consider and think about as we're navigating this. But if parents are listening, and they've got kids about to be in middle school, they've got middle school or high school students, and they're really struggling with leaning into the magic of these years, what's one thing you'd encourage them to think about as they leave listening to this episode? I think when your kids were younger, thinking of toddler years, if you didn't understand them developmentally, it would be the weirdest, most bewildering thing ever. Why are they suddenly <laughs> acting this way or changing so dramatically? Like We depend on understanding those stages to make sense of it all and not go crazy. So I think my number one suggestion for middle school parents is to have that same view that we have to understand what's going on developmentally. And in the book, I talk about these three kind of core developmental drives, the drive for authentic identity, for connection, and for contribution. 
And if you can really see their actions in that light and look for how they're starting to work toward those, help them work toward those, then you're helping them do their job and think their behavior will make more sense. They will be more open to you. And I think it'll be a better adventure. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Okay, Chris, this has been super fascinating. Again, I really enjoyed your book. Listeners, I encourage you to check it out. Again, it's called Finding the Magic in Middle School. I'll have links to that in the show notes page. But is there anywhere else on social media or elsewhere that you would encourage parents to check you out? Thank you. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram, just my name, Chris Baum, or on my website, chrisbaum.com. And I have a newsletter and some other things to look at there as well. Awesome. Well, thank you. Congratulations on the book. Super interesting. Thank you for everything you shared today. This has been just a really interesting conversation and one that we really haven't had on the show before. So I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Debbie. This was really fun. And I hope we can change the story back to our first point about what we think middle school really is. So thanks again. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To go deeper into this episode, visit the extensive show notes page. For every episode, there's a dedicated page on my website with links to all the resources mentioned, a full transcript, and a podcast player with key takeaways marked so you can easily go back and re-listen to the sections you're most interested in. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. This episode was edited by Andrea Curtis Amasquita, and show notes were put together by myself, Andrea, and Lindsay McFadden. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, and it's super easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash parenting to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. To follow Tilt Parenting on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by the listeners who need it by subscribing and leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about this podcast or any of the resources that Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.